0: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com/switch.
2: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, Face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
3: Welcome to the Wild Ones podcast, episode 26. This is the show where we chat about bike stuff. I'm Jimmy and this week I'm joined by producer Emily and cycling coach Pete. Hello. Hey Pete, how's it going? Good, glad to be
1: here. Uh, Just enjoying Francis's heated seat, which I thought sounded like a massive extravagance when I first came in here, but uh, it is a bit chilly in here, so
3: yeah. It is a bit chilly, I'm a bit disappointed. I thought you were going to be like me and be, you know, running hot and seeing the... uh, craziness that 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 heated seat is but then you were sitting there yeah, for a couple of minutes and decided getting you getting very it. soft these
1: days you know
3: <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about pete um he was a professional bike racer he has ridden for a british pro cycling team that was madison genesis from i can't even remember how many years ago he competed in belgium for three years which is definitely a rite of passage for british cyclists and probably most cyclists more professional cyclists in the world uh, represented Ireland and completed in the Commonwealth Games for Northern Ireland. He's also a maths teacher and he runs a coaching business with fellow bike racer James Jobber, which is called Upshift Velo. So how did you start the coaching business? Um, well, I, I'd been
1: coaching already for a couple of years, so i started coaching a little bit just towards the end of my career as a full-time ra- racer. Uh, that's actually how I met Francis, actually. So I lived in the same area as Francis and, you know, he was an up-and-coming cyclist. So that's why I I was doing a little bit of coaching while I was still racing and then um, moved back to Newcastle to train to be a teacher and about that time I met James. I think we clicked quite well because he was in a similar position to what I had been at one point, so he'd already done his degree and had kind of decided that he wasn't done with cycling and wanted to focus on it fully and see how far he could get, which is exactly the same situation that I was in, you know, whenever I was his age. And, uh, yeah, we just started working together. I started coaching him and... We just, you know, figured out quite quickly that we had a lot in common in terms of our outlook and ethos, and you know what kind of training methods we thought worked, and just the approach to racing. So, you know, quite quickly within a year or so, it went more from a coach and you know client relationship to mm-hmm. more of a friendship. And then also, we decided to go in together, and I completely felt like James was ready to start coaching himself. So since then, we've just been working together.
3: So, so James is uh the workshop or he's the he's the shop manager at Backyard Bike Shops, which is a, a shop based in Newcastle that myself and Francis spend a lot of time at, and Nick, pro mechanic, is also, also works at. James races at Pro Continental Yeah, so level? he's
1: the last couple of years been racing for continental teams, uh doing a lot of racing all over the world, actually. So he's racing for an American team this year and doing, you know, some races over In America, some in Europe, some in Asia.
3: I've spoken to James a lot because I'm always in the bike shop. Uh, And I've spoken to you about some stuff, but not in a huge amount of detail. What I find really fascinating about both of you is that you, historically for you and currently for James, compete at an unbelievably high level. But your approach to that is very unique based on a lot of stuff I've seen. Because when I used to race, never at the level that you guys have achieved, it was always this kind of like, you've got to be tough and be harder and you've got to go out in rubbish weather and you you have to just do more and be really hard. Whereas you guys are, are very much like, I guess what the sort of ethos that I am now, which is kind of like, I don't know if chilled is the right one because you're obviously still achieving incredible things. It's like prioritizing health, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, Absolutely. But
1: I think at the same time, you know, James still trains in all weathers and I would have done as well. And, you know, you do still need to be focused and driven and you need to put in the hard work. But I think, you know, it's it's all about doing it in a balanced way and, you know, keeping other elements of your life, you know, positive and just not getting too overwhelmed by it. But I think, you know, the, the, even though these days we are a lot more focused on kind of keeping you know our own other aspects of our health and involved i think you do still need to work very hard like the best guys still train hard the best guys will still be you know going through a lot more a lot of things other people just aren't prepared to and that's just the reality of it And i think that will always be the reality of it to to some extent
3: so something that we have talked about a bit uh you are very soon going to turn 38 i turned 38 a couple of months ago, um, and we've talked about how as we get older, maintaining fitness and training is different. I definitely feel like 10 years ago when I was in my late 20s, I could just kind of throw myself at anything and the next day I'd be ready to go again. Whereas now I feel like I wake up some mornings and I've been going like 10 rounds with Mike Tyson or something or other. Uh, which I'm I'm putting down to age and probably my now lack of uh, mobility and exercise compared to what I've historically done. Um, how have you found being a very, very high level cyclist in your mid and late twenties and now being a decade older?
1: Well, I think, um, I mean, I've stopped racing seriously whenever I was in my late twenties and I hadn't felt any depreciation in terms of condition. I think my fitness kind of changed. I think I became a bit more slow twitch and the things I got good at, the things I was good at changed a little bit as I aged. I became just more of a a diesel engine and less of a sprinter and kind of, probably still competed better though in in my, towards my late twenties. But, you know, I didn't stop because my body was starting to go, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't able to perform. I just, it was a, a decision that I made to focus on other things in my life but I think um yeah you're right once you get to past 35 you just need more recovery really you, you just have to be kinder to your body you need to give yourself prioritize your nutrition prioritize your rest and even kind of I started doing quite a bit of yoga towards the end of my cycling career and that's something I'd still do quite a lot of and I think it's all about being realistic with your time and realistic with your energy and noticing when you really feel like training is something that you're ready for you know it, it, sometimes it, it's 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 difficult to have that conversation in your mind is like am i just being lazy or is this not a good idea you know and i think it's it's an important it's important to kind of understand this your body's signals for okay is this a good idea or is it not and and just about being realistic and i think another thing i say to people all the time is probably if you are a cyclist you're likely to be somebody that wants to work really hard and put everything into it. And I definitely had the tendency to overdo it. I think 99% of cyclists had the tendency to overdo it. So I think it's probably If you're than that. even having that conversation with yourself, there's probably a good chance that you're, you know, you're maybe pushing the boundary a little bit.
3: Yeah. I, I, when I was late 20s, I definitely did too much. And now I'm at the point where I probably do too little. And I've kind of justified them in the same way. Yeah, I
1: think it. I mean, I can't compare what i'm my own training right now compared to what it used to be because at the minute i'm not sending massively high targets for myself it's just, right because i enjoy it mm-hmm. and, but i know a lot of people our age do and so i work with a lot of people like that and it's it's really just about you know being very attentive to yourself and your mood and your your body and you know and, and i think that's one ar- one area where i think having somebody that you're working with can really help in order have, having those conversations because i think having when you when you're only thinking of yourself, sometimes it's easier to not see the big picture, just to to look at the fine details and think, right, I need to do this today. Whereas I think sometimes if you're having a conversation with somebody else, then they can see things in a bit more of a rounded way mm-hmm. and can have a, a sometimes a better input than you can yourself.
3: Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, I'm sure we will dig dive or yep. dive digger dig di- deeper, dig, dive. dig dig dive dive deeper. into that a little bit later on. So, uh, we usually dive into a bit of cycling news, so we are still gonna do that. Um, Something that's been causing a stir online this week is Specialized selling a 3,100 pound alloy bike. It's the new Specialized uh, Alley Sprint. I have once, or I historically did have an Alley Sprint. It comes with Shimano 105 Di2 12 speed, DT Swiss, R470 wheels, a carbon fork, and in typical specialised fashion, they're calling it the fastest alloy road bike in history. What do you make of high-end alloy bikes, Pete?
1: Well, I come from a time where, you know, a lot of people were racing alloy bikes. You know, whenever I started mid or early 2000s, uh, you would have had uh, some carbon bikes, but a lot of people would have been riding aluminium. I'm, I'm not quite old enough to have been in this, from the steel generation, but um, yeah, I mean... I think I had a really good memories. I had a Cannondale Cad 7 in about 2000 and I actually got it for my 18th birthday, 2004 to 2007. And I went from that, from that bike to carbon bikes for a couple of years. And it was a couple of years before I felt like I, I liked a bike as much as as that one, even though I was riding carbon bikes. I think sometimes people just go crazy for carbon. The other thing is, you know, uh, when I started with Madison Genesis, we were racing steel bikes. So I probably have ridden and still own perhaps the fastest steel bike that's ever existed. You know, I,
3: I remember that. That was like a big uh, thing, wasn't oh it? Oh yeah, it was huge. Reynolds 953 Protein yeah. Steel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it
1: was it was massive. Because at that point, I think all the Genesis bikes were steel. And then they then, at the end of that second year of the team, they then brought out a carbon. But I think they just admitted that for performance, you were never quite going to be able to get the same thing with steel as you could with yeah. carbon but it's still a lovely bike and um
3: what's the highest level that you've ridden a steel bike i mean i i did one season
1: on a british continental team race the commonwealth games on a steel bike you know race tour of britain on a steel bike commonwealth so, games on yeah, a steel yeah, bike yeah, yeah,
3: that is legendary yeah. what's the highest level you raced an alloy bike um
1: mm, i mean i would have been racing it in like, that was whenever I was kind of sort of coming through, so, yeah, like, lower-level pro races, and I won the Northeast Divisional Championships on, a, on an alloy bike, and, yeah. But at the same time, obviously, you're comparing that with... I think the thing, really, here is it shows just how all bikes are getting more expensive, mm-hmm. regardless of what material you're using, and it's just a case of kind of whether that's justified and that kind of thing, and even the fact that it's only got, like, 105 on it, you know, it would be interesting to put- You say that. Be- it, what you should do, you and Francis need to get a, get one of these, put the best wheels on it, put the best group set on it, and just see how it performs. Because I'm sure it probably, you know, it would be marginal differences really.
3: 105 Di2 is basically a high-end group set now. Right. This is the thing we talk about a lot is i really want to try it us us growing up with group sets 105 was like entry level yeah, yeah. whereas that isn't the case anymore like it's it is as good as race, it's just a bit heavier yeah so in terms of performance it will be like exceptional uh the difference between that bike with 105 di2 and that bike with durace di2 is going to be negligible
1: yeah but i think the wheels might be i mean the wheels are junk. the wheels are well, probably they're not where junk, you get the biggest difference you know? yeah so that, that, you would, could probably that would be a big difference upgrade the wheels but that goes for any bike you can upgrade the wheels and make a big difference.
3: So most people that listen to this, if they do race, they probably do crit races rather than stage races, et cetera, et cetera. Is there an argument that an ally bike is a better or worse race bike for crit racing? I mean,
1: one thing I know about crit races is that there's a lot of crashes and, you know, is is it more likely to end up in six pieces at the end of it? You know, absolutely not, you know. So that, I, I remember... Roger Hammond, who was um, DS at Madison, obviously he was trying to plug the the steel bikes, but he was saying, I don't understand how amateur cyclists buy carbon bikes because they're just so, you know, they are very, it's just so breakable.
3: Yeah, when I did used to race, I used to race on steel or alloy, and I always used to buy alloy bikes. I used to buy basically alloy frame so i had i had an alloy sprint i had a cad 12 and then put really really top end yeah, everything yeah. on them and you used to end up with a light really was good that bike that for like money reasons or is that for durability reasons or just everything really it was it was a better value it always felt like better value because i was essentially saving a couple of grand on a bike mm. and still getting something that performed really well
1: i don't know i mean i reckon there's probably more variety in terms of quality with carbon than anything else mm-hmm. because you know plenty of bad carbon bikes out there I think you you, you you do get what you pay for even within the carbon range there's still a huge difference So people just it's it's a typical thing Oh, carbon bike well, that one's gonna be better you know that's just how a lot of people think but it's you know usually it's more complicated than that
3: I, I know what Francis will be thinking here he'll be thinking if you crash a carbon bike it can be repaired for a few hundred pounds If you crash an alloy bike to the extent that you've actually broken it you've broken it it's a write off
1: yeah but how many crashes would you have where the alloy bike will be completely not a scratch and then the carbon bikes in three pieces yeah
3: that that's that's kind of the playoff isn't it i guess the challenge with this now though is this is three thousand one hundred pounds for an alloy bike if you wrote that frame off, that frame on its own is probably 1,500 pounds. Mm. Whereas when we were racing alloy bikes, the mm. frame was probably 400 quid. Yeah, yeah. So if you did write the frame yeah. off, it would be not easy, but a lot easier to just replace the frame, move your stuff over and, and crack on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even think like insurance was that much of a thing back then because it just wasn't as necessary. You know, mm. the you could handle replacing a 800-pound frame in the same way as, you know, whereas these days... If your frame's three grand, it's like you're not going to just have that money waiting to to buy it to replace it. Yeah. That's why, That's uh, and obviously that's why insurance is so common these days.
3: I mean, myself used to ride right by Lee Valley, Lee, Lee, Lee Valley, Lee Valley, yeah. Velo Park, where they used to do crit racing. We used to race time trials there, things like that. Uh, and we quite often go to the crit races because we always knew people racing. And it would always blow my mind where you'd get someone racing on like a 10, 15,000 pound yeah. full carbon aero bike in a, a very crashy crit. Yeah. In London. I, I think
1: as well, cause like how, how long ago was that? Uh, four years ago, three years ago. So, I mean, obviously that's a huge thing down in London, obviously get money for a lot, lots of people down in London. They've got a lot more disposable income and, you know, having a flashy bike is, is, is a big part of it. But uh, I think even that's filtering up now as well. You, you get a lot more up here, a lot more of that up here as well. And, you know, I still race on a rim brake bike. I, I have multiple bikes with disc brakes, but they're not race bikes. So yeah. any, any of the races I've done recently, I still do it on rim brakes. And I'm not anti-disc brakes. It's just, I, at this point, racing road races and spending lots of money on on a, a bike like that is just not something that I'm interested in. And I, I'm still happy with what I have, you know. Um It was fairly recently. I think it was, it's, it's really interesting that like Ineos were one of the last teams to make that change, you know. I think it was, um, Bernal won this year on a rim brake bike. Whenever it was almost the only rim brake bike in the in the peloton at that point, and he yeah. still. So it just shows. I think I think a lot of people will look at the finer details like that and just think. Almost, it's a bit like what we're going to talk about later with kind of training approaches. Is people think these things should make a massive difference? From really, you know, it's marketing. Put put a, put a good guy on a bike that's nothing fancy, and he'll he'll still usually come, up, come out on top, you know.
3: So 3,100 pounds for uh, an alloy, specialized alley sprint with a 105 Di2 group set. Is it good value or not? I would have to ride the bike. I'm sorry. Oh, he's playing it safe. <laughs> he's playing it safe. Yeah, yeah. It, it to be fair, it's it's a horrible question because- What do you think? Um, I think it will be a really, really nice bike with yeah. a wheel upgrade. And then it's a, at least a four thousand pound bike. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's not very good value. It it feels hard to say that three thousand one hundred pounds is going to get you good value. I would still pick the Decathlon bike over that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm looking. You got lots of these kind of lower end bikes. So I'm really want to know which ones. Which one's your favorite?
3: Uh, is it here? No, it's not. We've we've. I think we gave it to charity. Uh, there's an eight hundred and fifty pound Decathlon with hydraulic brakes but mechanical shifters one of five group set uh it's great i think you would really like it right. and i think yeah. you would win races on it right now right now <laughs> a few years ago maybe on the subject of races you said you still do the odd race what, what have you done in the last few years very little very just like little. a couple of local crits a couple
1: of local road races i was working with the cycling team this year and did did a couple with them uh i did like think ma- the main thing that i've done in the last couple of years that I really focused on and actually trained for and enjoyed was the Dirty Reaver so I did the Dirty Reaver last year yeah which was amazing I, I mean I've been just riding gravel myself for the last three or four years and absolutely love it I, I, for the it's it is 100% my favorite just way of riding right now and um yeah it was, it was also like 200ks off road like eight and a half hours yeah I think the best guys were doing it in kind of just under seven, but still it was a new challenge. I think that was what appealed to me about it as well. It was sort of not just racing something that I used to do at a level far below what I used to be at. It was doing something completely new that I didn't have any comparisons with my sort of formal, former racing self. And um,
3: that's actually a really good point. And it's something that I've struggled so much with over the last decade is comparing myself to my former self it's t- <laughs> literally taken about six years for me to get to a point where i go right okay so this is the this is now the new normal yeah. whereas i still used to think that i could like get there
1: yeah i think to be honest i, I haven't taken it as seriously to, in any way as i as i used to you know i've I've never really knuckled down and thought right I, i'm actually gonna see how what i can really do at this point i think there's my life priorities are different. I'm, my life's just so much busy, more, more so much more busy now. But um, I think comparison with yourself sometimes can be positive. Whenever you're on on the up, you know it's good sometimes mm-hmm. to see improvements and oh, uh, you know, I was able to do this that I wasn't this thing I wasn't able to do six months ago or whatever. But obviously, you can't stay at the top of the mountain forever. <laughs> and sometimes, it, I think whenever you're on the way down, or you, you, if you're not. Taking things as seriously as you used to, it's just important to understand that it's like there's a reason that I'm not at this level, and that's because I'm doing other things with my life, or my art, my priorities have changed, and just not beating like not beating yourself. Like, like there's a reason that I used to be able to just pedal around at 250 watts for five hours, because that's most of what I did with my life. Mm-hmm. Whereas these days you know, so many, so many other things that are important that I enjoy. And so I can still enjoy riding my bike, but just try not to have that negative voice in my head telling me that I used to be way better at it. So, yeah, I think it's really sad. And it's, it's one thing I see actually sometimes with clients that I have had is that they start out and they're super ambitious and they really want to improve and they, They put everything into it and, you know, they show real dedication and, um, and the fact that they decide to get a coach to help them, obviously it means that they're they're taking it seriously. And then, you know, they see improvements or whatever, or, and then it happened a lot through COVID. I think whenever COVID happened and racing fell away and it was really difficult for people to keep going and, and a lot of them stopped and a lot of them don't even really ride anymore. And it's kind of sad because it's basically it's basically saying, okay, I, I am really interested in cycling if I can do it at this very, very high level that I'm setting for myself. Mm-hmm. And I would rather not bother than be slower than I used to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is really sad because cycling is or any kind of you, anything you get into that you want to put that much time and effort into, you must have some kind of passion for it and some kind of joy for it. And just letting that completely fall away from your life, which to be honest, I kind of did a little bit whenever I stopped racing. It took me quite a long time to come back to it and be able to just enjoy training and enjoy riding my bike without it being, I, I kind of knew that it would always be part of my life, but for some people, they just completely leave it. And yeah. you know, that, that's, it's, that's a sad thing.
3: Now onto our big question. Is training like a professional a good target for most cyclists?
1: Um, I would say... In the majority of cases, at least initially, no. I think it's something that people, a mistake that people quite often make whenever they either are just starting or whenever they decide to kind of step it up from the level that they're currently at is that they they look too hard at like the top end specifics of what the pros are doing. Because there's so much information now about what everyone's doing and kind of uh, and I think generally cyclists are just so keen to latch onto those things and try to apply them to their own training. But I just see so many examples of people who are focusing on those, if you think little things like the cherry on the top of the cake, when they're not actually really they haven't got the base sorted yet. You know, yep. they're they're focusing too much on those niche little things and neglecting gaping holes and uh, just the very, very obvious things that need to be, need to be dealt with.
3: So I am 100% one of those people. I'm the worst kind of athlete back in my day. So I was working full time and I specifically like to the words I used to tell people, I want to train like a pro and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So like, I didn't have a childhood. I used to play sports and was active as a didn't kid. Have childhood. Oh <laughs> well, no i i guess i did have a childhood is, is is probably a better way of putting it i wasn't a, a standout athlete as yeah. as a child like yeah. some people are which is what then grooms them into you know i imagine jobber was probably a really good athlete when he was in school i wasn't one of those people so i yeah. wasn't like naturally groomed into sport so when i came at it uh in my mid-20s it was like, right, so I'm going to see what I'm capable of. I'm going to see how fast I can be at this, this, mm-hmm. w- whatever at the time. And that's
1: commendable, obviously.
3: You know. uh, I just, I, well, I think I just approached it. What I did was exactly what this is saying. I was like, right, so how do the pros do it? Let me try and do that whilst also having a job and a life. Yeah. So I got a coach who was actually amazing. And without him, God knows what would have happened because he was constantly telling me to back off with stuff. Uh, and telling me off where it was like, that was meant to be an easy session. Why were you at threshold? I was like, oh, that was fun. Um, so I was I was training upwards of 20 hours a week as well as having a full-time job. So I was training in the morning, in the evening, on the weekends, just all of the time. And it was just not very healthy. Do you find people still doing these kind of things oh, in this yeah. day mean, and age?
1: All the time, all the time. It's It's just, it's a commendable thing to set, you know, high target to yourself and be, be keen and, you know, all those things are good, but it's just a case of, I think only starting from where you're at and not trying to jump forward, you know, three steps, just, just focusing on what you're doing, making improvements to that. And then, you know, changing the ethos. I think that, um, a lot of the time, whenever I take people on, they're quite often surprised at how the training is easier than what they would have expected or are a big, proportion of the training is at a lower intensity from what they expect. Yeah. I think that um people have this idea that you need to smash every session and if you don't finish every single session, you know, knackered, then you haven't done it properly. And um I think there's also a even when you are basing your training on what the pros are doing, like the pros tell you about that really hard session that they did with loads of savage intervals and or, you know, they're going and re- reconning mountain stages or like cobble sections or whatever, like they tell you the fancy stuff, but they they don't tell you about what they do eighty percent of the time, which is actually not all that different from what you're doing. So it's all about getting the right proportions of the right intensities. Mm -hmm. And quite often people are surprised by how little of the hard stuff that involves. Yeah. It's easy to fall into the trap of trying to recreate their what's rather than trying to recreate their intensity, I guess, isn't it? What their body's really doing. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and just and neglecting the basics like sleep above anything, get your cycle right. If you're combining it with a job and a family, it's all about those things that are just rigid. You can't move those things. You might be able to, you know, slightly change your working hours or whatever. But at the same time, you need to earn money and you're not a pro yet. You need, if you have a family and those commitments, they aren't just going to disappear. And it's it's all about keeping all of those plates spinning, but at the same time trying to train with the most effectiveness. And, you know, I think a a lot of the time when I start with somebody, I quite often just tell them, I'm going to try to help you make the best use of the time that you have. Tell me how much time you can commit to this. I'm not going to tell you how much time to commit to it. You tell me how much time you've got, and we're just going to try and reasonably and sensibly make the best use of that and to me that's the most sensible thing you can
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm, hello fresh
3: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's your opinions on like the effects of cycling marketing and how that trickles down into uh, normal people's lives, like uh, the marketing around nutrition and bike weight and aerodynamics and all of that stuff.
1: I I kind of feel I spend a lot of time telling people that these things are not worth it or that, you know, um, to not look at these nice things. And I don't want people thinking that I don't believe in the benefits of those things. I think I'm not saying those things have no benefit at all. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about nutritional products. Yes, absolutely. They will be better. But it's just a case of, how much difference do they make? You know, it, you know, if, if I was when I was doing a professional bike race, I wanted to make sure I was on the best bike, I was eating the best stuff, I was as well prepared as I possibly could be, because mentally, as much from a, from my mind, I needed to believe that I'd had the be- best preparation possible. Mm-hmm. There was just like a comfort in knowing that okay, everything's everything's in place here for me to perform at an elite level. Absolutely, but I think we are talking to those people who are not at that point. They, they might be doing, they might just be out with their cycling club or they're doing a gravel event or whatever. And it's, it's are these, and, and these people are the ones that have got the money. And it's quite often those people that are just having all these fancy things, but like leaving massive gaps as well. Yeah, I, I, I guess
3: th- I guess one of the anomalies is just rich people that can just buy a 15 grand bike and go and yeah. race crits on and if they crash it they don't it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was going to get a coach I would without a doubt work with you and James because I am at the point where I know having a 10,000 pound bike or a 2,000 pound bike isn't really going to make a difference to me because the only thing that actually holds me back now is riding. Mm -hmm. Uh, actually doing it and what sessions do and making it fit with my life and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But then, you know, if, if someone can afford the best nutrition in the world and the best bike in the world and the best wetsuit in the world, if they're a triathlete and the best trainers, you know, sure, fine, whatever, but don't think that that is going to replace the training that you should be doing.
1: There's this thing about cyclists as well, which like I never had, you know, which was just this, the, the look thing that, oh, like, I I, <laughs> I remember uh, doing my first race in the south of England. So we're talking 2008. And I'd been racing for, you know, I'd, I'd already been at University in Newcastle, racing in the north. I remember going down and doing, it's called the Surrey Five Day, which is this amazing event down, you know, well, it wasn't just in Surrey, but in the south of England. And um, I remember showing up with a group of riders from Ireland, and we all just had, like, my shirt, my jersey didn't match my shorts, my bike, you know, that Cannondale I was telling you about, but you know, nothing fancy, did not look the part at all. Yep. Should have all these fancy teams, matching kit, nice socks, new white shoes, all that, you know, carbon wheels and carbon wheels were very rare. I remember thinking, right, okay, this is going to be, these guys look, these guys look good. Okay, so I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be off for a hard day here and I won the bike race. Congratulations. In, you know, <laughs> not matching my shorts didn't match my jersey. You know, it's yeah. just because all those things that all this look, all the, it was just this uh environment of kind of how you look being more important than what what's actually underneath underneath the bonnet.
3: That leads us really nicely into talking about the pro look, um, which I think a lot of people get into their head and it is more than You know, it's having the right bike. It's being the right weight. It's having a bike that weighs under a certain amount of kilos um, and kind of trying to emulate the pro cyclist look. Like, for example, do you shave your legs still? No. I,
1: and I used to shave my legs before my first bike race. I never shaved my legs through the winter, even when I was racing full time. Yeah. And I would shave my legs if I was doing a bike race. But I quite like having. I like. I feel masculine. I've. I've. I. I feel like a grown man when I've got hairy legs. <laughs> you know. And even when I ride a bike, I don't care. People sometimes point it out, and I don't
3: care. S- so that because it's it's almost like uh well it's it's y- you wouldn't be taken seriously in a lower level crit race if you didn't have your leg shaven. Yeah. It'd be like, oh, he's not shaved his yeah. legs. I mean, probably going to be a sketch fest. There's
1: actually more uh, more. Evidence nowadays that it does actually provide an aerodynamic aerodynamic <laughs> advantage. So <laughs> it, you it know, breaks up the air. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a reason we do it. And um, like I was saying about the equipment, like if I if I was taking that race seriously, I'd be shaving my legs. Yeah, because I wouldn't I'd I wouldn't want any extra drag that wasn't necessary. It, the case is just like if you go out, out on a Sunday with your mates, it's, do you need to do it at that point? You know,
2: obviously stuff like shaved legs and what socks you have and all of that is kind of it's trivial you can do it or not do it but I guess when it comes to diet and body weight and those kind of things do you think that that pro image um that people try to emulate can that have damaging effects on on people
1: definitely the body image part so you know I think when a lot of people young cyclists or even you know, club cyclists, whatever, they have a certain body image that they're striving for, which to them is the the body image that belongs to a, a successful professional cyclist. And um, and also, you know, I don't look good. In a, I, I wouldn't say that I look as good and like as I used to because my physique is not what it used to be. And I, it just doesn't look as good, you know? And if but I'm okay with that, you know, I think mo- both, of, both of us would be fine with that. But I think the, the danger is that, people strive for this particular body image and they have an idea of what a professional cyclist looks like. And quite often they will base that on the guys that win the Tour de France. So, you know, in order to win the Tour de France, you need to be able to climb up mountains, you know, multiple mountains on over multiple days better than the people around you. And that requires being very, very lean. If you think about, you know, Vingegaard, Pogachart, these are very, very skinny guys, but... Um, so I, I was working with a cycling team this year and we had a, a meetup at the beginning of the year and I showed them a picture of the podium from the Worlds in Yorkshire in 2019. And that was the, obviously we had the Worlds in the UK this year as well, but at that point it was the biggest bike race that had been in the UK for the last 20 years at that point. And the three guys that ended up on the podium were Mads Pedersen, who's a big guy, uh, Stefan Kung, another big guy, and Matteo Trentin. They are all grown men. They're mu- they're, they have muscular body types. Like They are not skinny cyclists when you picture a skinny cyclist. And they had just finished top three in the world over British roads. Mm-hmm. And I think whenever people have an idea, in terms of aesthetics, but then I think also in terms of performance, what makes a a cyclist physique, I think sometimes our perceptions are wrong. Um, You know, those guys aren't going to win the Tour de France. But then neither is anybody who's listening to this. You know, but But you might want to prove yourself through the UK racing scene and then move on to racing up mountains. But you're not going to get the opportunity to race up mountains if you've not performed well in this scene. In order to do that, you need to be strong. You need to be fit. You need to be able to actually ride a bike properly as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the, the, the perceptions are very, yeah. very different. You know, you think about Wiggins, whenever he won the Tour de France, he slimmed down. There were four years. When people picture Bradley Wiggins, they think of him when he was as lean as he was when he won the Tour de France. But that was only a period of about four years where he was targeting Grand Tours. Whenever he was targeting, you know, pursuits or he put on weight in order to win the the world TT championships in 2014 and then to compete for the pursuit team in, in the Olympics in 2016, you know? So he, he was adapting his physique in order to fit what he was targeting. And for lots of people, you know, they think it's all about being thin. It's, it's not, it's about being strong and lean is part of it, but you know, it's about, it's about the engine really. Even throughout my career, my body type changed and then my, my strengths and weaknesses changed as well. So, you know, it, it, it's, but the leanest I got, I remember I had that thing we're talking about where that I wanted to be really, really skinny. And I I remember having a, it was one of the leanest I already was. And I remember having a winter vomiting bug and a, Literally, the, the the lightest my adult self had ever been, and I was unwell. I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, "Wow, I, I liked what I saw." Yeah, it was crazy, you know.
3: I, I had a sort of similar experience. So the the lightest I ever was was just before a race that I was making a big deal for, and I was so proud of myself that I was like, uh, just just unbelievably skinny. And there was a couple of pictures of me from before the race, just in a pair of running shorts. And I saw them like a week later mm-hmm. and I was so upset at how ill I looked yeah. that I was like, I have to change I mean, this.
1: I've, I've compared, you know, well, both young men and young women looking at cycling magazines to generally young women looking at, you know, girls magazines and the kind of that striving for that particular physique mm. and, and the damage we know about the damage that it does for, you know, lots of girls and then it, it 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 can be similar in cycling and even you know exercise can be a form of bulimia and uh it's it's it can it can get to the point where it's very unhealthy
3: so we we talked before the show about how people get their motivation and how sometimes it can be actually from quite a negative place do you uh as part of your coaching deal with uh, or how do you deal with the the ne- the negative effect or the negative mentality of going into into training
1: yeah i think I think what we were talking about was where people 's motivation comes from and whether it's kind of either like ch- achieving in order to compensate for some sort of lack that they have or else trying to prove people wrong or you know doing something or, or almost like fear of failure you know they're, they're training because they're afraid that if they don't they won't achieve. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you can't win. If, if that's your mindset, there's no winning because it you either get it and then it's just relief or you don't get it. And then it's, you know, s- self-criticism or whatever. And I think, um, for me, from my own experience, and then also with the, the people I work with as well, it's, it's really just about trying to See what what they're really motivated by, what inspires them, and also kind of why they're doing it, and and it, it's it it should be something that you just are interested in. something there just should be some fun in it. If you look at the best pros, the real top ones, they're having a great time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're enjoying themselves, and the whereas a lot of other people who are who are trying to strive for that, it just looks like a chore. You know, and they, yeah. they don't, they're not actually getting anything from it. You know, there's an element of playfulness. You, you look at like Pogitar, hes he's got this playful character. Sagam was the classic example where he, yeah, yeah. it was all just a big show and fun. And I i, I felt, fell victim sometimes of just not having the fun anymore. Yeah. You know, and, but I think you get the best out of yourself if you're, if you're enjoying yourself, if you still have that passion, you're still connected to that reason that you started.
3: So you're effectively doing it because you want to do it, not because you feel you have to do it. Yeah,
1: and 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 I think as well, but it's a difficult mindset to switch. You know, it's it's not like oh, you should just want to do this because you want to do it, not because you feel like you're afraid of you know not being able. It's a very very difficult thing to to really break. You know, Um, but I think a lot of it's just about having conversations with people. I think as well managing expectations because if people are always setting their sights on something which is maybe just unrealistic then that never ends well as well that that you
3: know? is 100% of all of my training yeah yeah <laughs> until very recently
1: it's just like for example if you try and just recre- recreate some what's that are unrealistic then mm. you're just going to break down and and it will it will the training will actually break you rather than build you up and I think at all points you know it you should feel like you want to do it not every single day but you, there should still be an element of you that enjoys the work and also you don't need to be knackered all the time you know <laughs> you should you should have energy for other things in your life and uh and that that energy will just transfer and it is it, 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 p- p- keeping yourself mentally in the right place and you know in not getting consumed by it and so many people where it's like it becomes the biggest thing they're not they're not even doing it anywhere near full time they're just got jobs and families and everything and they just get so obsessive about it and it's you know it can be quite damaging and i think also counterproductive
3: i th- I, th- I think i think you've hit the nail on the head there if and i think a really good benchmark for this stuff because there is n- there is nothing wrong with being really into something but i guess the thing to always be aware of is do you actually enjoy it? Because if you're not enjoying it, there's just no point.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's also, it is a, a marker of overtraining as well. If you're, if you're not, got any interest in it? If there's no kind of, part of you that's interested in it, and and it, it, if if you really, are choosing to do something, you should be choosing it because you want it. And if that, if that sort of Passion starts to disappear, then that's usually a a sign that something's wrong.
3: Time for a round of overrated or underrated. I'm going to read a list of things and Pete's going to tell me if he thinks they're overrated or underrated. First up is a suggestion by Matthew sports nutrition for normal riders. Underrated. Oh. Sorry, overrated. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Overrated. I think it's important, but you can get a very, very similar effect. From the most basic stuff.
3: Can you give me one example?
1: Two examples. Okay. Two examples you'll find in my pockets a lot of the time on the kids. Mars, Snickers. They just... They are almost an energy bar. Yeah. You get a a packet of four for one energy bar. But even like like Jelly Babies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? I think there's so much evidence... Sweets are a, a great one, aren't they? Yeah. I think as well, there's a lot more evidence now that loading with a lot of carbs is really massively beneficial, both in training and in racing. It just, you know, prolongs your endurance hugely. And I think I already, when I was racing, I used to eat more than anybody I knew. Like My pockets would be fuller than anyone's I, I knew. Like I just always hated that feeling of like I was running the risk of running on empty. But mm-hmm. I also just was very, very good over long races. And I think that those two things were probably correlated Mm -hmm. you know i was was fueling like lots of people do nowadays but there was just less i think there's also this old school mentality with cycling again about around you know eating's cheating it's it's absolutely not it's it's important to be it's essential it's important to to be fueling yourself so like i'm saying i would probably say nutrition on the whole is underrated but the branded stuff is overrated i'll give you that yeah
3: next is power
1: meters I, again, both. I would again say both, but it
3: it just completely depends you on... You can't me. say both. You have to no, pick one. I'm going to say both. All right, justify that then.
1: So one question that I've asked myself is, if I had a son or a daughter who was serious about cycling, at what age would I buy them a power meter?
3: Good, good question. like it.
1: And I think probably it would be when they went from juniors to under 23, because I would want them to have enough time where they were getting to know their own sensations learning to actually ride a bike being able to handle a bike and you know i i would get them started on skills. Cyclocross, cross 100% yeah skills you know? skills is so underrated yeah completely and and bunch craft and you know stealing other people's watts rather than just using your own watts mm-hmm. all those things um which are completely neglected and i think partly because it's very difficult to sell that, you know, bunch riding skills. Who, who's selling you that?
3: I've never heard anyone refer to it as stealing other people's Watts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what you do.
1: And you know, it's another, another situation where James and I are probably, we would both admit to never being, ha- having the biggest engines, but we're just very good at stealing other people's Watts and, you know, using, just being clever with, with what you've got. And, um, so I would say, Having a power, once you get to a certain point of where you have trained to a certain level and are trying to get to another level, I think that a power meter is massively useful. And, um, but I think that a lot of people just get them too soon and they don't know know what they're doing or they get caught up with the watts or even another thing about being, if you're like a young cyclist and you're comparing what you're doing with what you're reading on the internet, if you're 15, your watts are going to be rubbish. Like every 15 year olds are just going to be nowhere near what they're reading. Yeah. But I'm sure the great, the great racers of the present and the past had no idea what they were doing when they were that age Yeah, yeah and they weren't losing out at all, you know? So I think I would say, yeah, it, it completely depends on where somebody's at.
2: Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What, if you know it, what's the average sort of age of your clients?
1: Average age would probably be, about jimmy and ice (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we do have some young aspiring cyclists i love working with and james does as well where you're working with you know a young person who has the opportunity to still dream and to you know you can really uh and they might have more time as well available and they can commit to it and, and you know and you can also use the experience in terms of What might be the best team to race for or where might be the best place to locate yourself for? You know, being a mentor for somebody who's going through a similar process to what I went through whenever I was young, um, I really enjoy that. Uh, But the reality is that a lot of people who would be coming would be in a similar position to what Jimmy's talking about, where they've, they've already got those commitments. They've discovered that they have a, a passion for the sport and maybe a certain level of of ability and they just want somebody to guide them. A lot of the time it's just there's so much information around and you can access all of it, but a lot of it is a case of right, what do I do with all of this? And it's sometimes just having somebody that's there who can make that decision for you. I mean, I I had a coach up to about 28, 29. I had the same coach through most of my cycling career and I was already coaching other athletes. Whenever I was coaching, coaching Francis, I still had a coach because I wanted, I didn't want to have to think in the morning, what am I going to do? We would have a a consultation. We'd have a talk about what areas of training we wanted, to fo- we wanted to focus on and that decision would be made. So in the morning it would just be, this is what I'm going to go and do and I'm going to come home and I'm going to recover. And there was no, you know, I, 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 I preferred it that way.
3: So I, I didn't, you actually coached Francis. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we, we met about 10 years ago and
1: just at like a, I think there's like a training event for like Kingston Wheelers. That, yeah. And yeah, we just started riding together. We, he lived just around right the corner and we we started training together a
3: little bit. And The next, actually, I'm just going to add a bonus one off the back of that. Francis Cade as an elite racer. Are you, are you asking me about- Yeah, overrated or underrated? I think uh, he
1: didn't, he stopped quite young he i'm sure he could have been really really good if he'd st- he stuck at it but he just obviously had other things that he wanted to do in his life you know and um yeah he, he was he was good he was good in the hills but you know it, it's a bit like what i was talking about he um wasn't as strong as a lot of the guys that were better than him. if he'd been racing up mountains he would have been a lot more successful than he was but the reality was he was racing in the UK yeah. and that's not the scene. And that's kind of what I was talking about, really. So, um, so what he you, is a better YouTuber than an elite cyclist. I'll give you that.
3: So what, <laughs> what I took from that is there's a possibility he could have won the Tour de France. That's, let's let's just go with that, we'll leave it at that. Right, next one is New Year's even fitness resolutions, overrated or underrated?
1: I think I actually used to love re- training on the first of January because it always felt like, okay, it was so calm, clean slate. Yeah, even if I had a hangover, it was still like, okay, I'm just going to do this, and it's a clean slate. You know, it's it's an opportunity to kind of re, rethink and re and um, refocus. Uh, but yeah, you gotta you gotta stick with something.
3: Before we finish up the section, do you have any to add to the mix? Um, I'm going to say, underrated, overrated, and underrated weather
1: conditions for cycling. What do you think my ideal cycling weather is?
3: Um,
1: 30
2: degrees, sunny, somewhere in Spain. Nope.
1: What is it? Like negative three degrees and snow It is just the best. Specifically snow? Specifically snow. Okay. So when it's, you know what we had the weekend here? Mm -hmm. Like nice snow. It's just your body is warmer if it's negative three because you don't get wet if you're riding in the snow. So there's no kind of wind chill. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just everything is countryside looks amazing it's so quiet and you, you, you as long as you've got the right bike for it but i I used to enjoy riding in the snow even when i didn't have i didn't have a gravel bike when I was racing. I used to just be on the roads and I enjoyed it but
2: are you riding on road or off road and what type of bike are you riding these
1: days it would mainly be gravel bike and a combination of the two because with with gravel bike and decent tires, it makes it so much safer but
3: I agree that Negative three with snow is very pleasant. The only issue I have with winter and cold is the minus one to four degrees space. Oh, yeah. And the problem with that is you get a lot of, it's very common for there to be icy roads, icy tarmac. And the mentality in that space of being like, oh, I'm just going to go out anyway, is just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah,
1: that's that's fair. It's, I think it's just dangerous.
3: It's higher risk. It's there's a high chance of you falling out. There are ways of mitigating it, and I know you and James ride a lot in rubbish weather. Yeah, yeah. And I have this back and forth with James about yeah. him being idiot. I think an idiot. a lot of it
1: is it's being careful which roads you're using, being real, like just scanning the surfaces. Like if it's shiny,
3: it's just it's bad news. Yeah, I I think what I have learned from you and James going out in the really cold stuff is you're not going out and being like, I don't care, I'm just gonna ride anyway. You're actually doing it sensibly. Like yeah, I yeah. think James went out on a, I think I'm pretty sure he went out on a mountain bike. Yeah, um, yeah. Because you're going like, well, this is the most appropriate tool. Yeah. I'm going to avoid that bit of what is almost definitely ice. I'm not just going to ride through it because you're not trying. You're not going yeah. out and going, I'm going to crash. You're going out going, well, I'm going to have some fun and mitigate the chances yeah, yeah. of me having a crash. That leads us on to fluff up of the week.
2: Let's keep this one brief, shall we? This isn't fair. This
3: isn't fair because it leads with my name, and I'm not the source of the issue. Uh, So, (laughs) just before this podcast, um, I formatted the memory cards as we always do before the podcast, and it turns out that there was footage on there that we shot earlier this week that was has not yet been edited. That now no longer exists. And I'm actually going to blame Francis for it because he took all of the memory cards home apart from the ones for the podcast, which are not meant to be used for other video stuff. So we ended up formatting one that should never have been used in the first place. We've just lost a load of footage that no one's ever going to see again. And I'm not going to tell you what it was.
2: It would have been the best video in the world. (laughs) And now we'll just have to make a a tribute tribute
1: to it. I I just
3: made sure I was not involved in that conversation because I thought
1: it was turning into like... Serious domestic. <laughs> so,
2: Did you think it was domestic? I think yeah. we've, we've worked together long enough that yeah, we can kind of... I didn't of, know that. No. I just
3: was staying well clear. <laughs> <laughs> and now, time for some more listeners takeover. We have loads of questions for Pete, so we'll go through a few and we will attempt to not make this a four-hour podcast. <laughs> um, first one is... Oh, my God, this is absolutely massive. Do you want me to read it? Uh, yes, Okay. I do.
2: This is a message from Andy. It starts off, I'm worried that I'm overtraining, but how do I know? A typical working day is 30 minutes on the trainer, three sessions of 60 press-ups and 60 sit-ups and a 30-minute walk. On a Friday afternoon, I go for a mountain bike ride of around 25 miles or a 30-minute run. Then on a Saturday, it's a 70-mile club ride along with more press-ups and sit-ups. And Then on Sunday, it's 25 miles on the mountain bike with the same 60-60 sessions. I might do a 30-minute walk over the weekend too. Also, with the amount of exercise I do, I track what I eat. How do I know if I'm tired because I'm doing too much or if I'm not eating enough? The app says I'm meeting my needs most days. I do worry I have a borderline eating disorder because I do obsess about my weight. I try not to be influenced by what I watch and read, but a lot is made of not being too heavy. It's quite a a heavy question. Yeah, there's a
1: lot in there. Um, A lot of interesting things. I think... A few things we've talked about already as well, sort of mentioned on, you know, the weight side and that kind of thing. So um, it it, it is impossible to say whether that this person is overtraining or not without actually having a a conversation with them. I I mean, the, the workload is one part of it. But if I was speaking to somebody, I wouldn't be asking them as much about how much training they'd be doing. I'd be asking about their body's response to the training. So, you know, it's it's the the input, but then really what I'm interested in is, you know, how do you feel when you're not on the bike? How do you when you stand up, do you get lightheaded? What is your is everything okay with your sleep patterns, you know, libido, that kind of thing. All these things are just your body's markers of whether it's healthy. And if they start to break down, then that is a a a a symptom of, of overtraining and I think one other thing which is interesting is the app says my my needs are sort my, my the app says I meet my needs most day most days and I think there's definitely a danger for us to get too caught up in what this you know digital world
2: yeah in terms of calorie counting and that calorie concern.
1: counting training as well even yeah. you know we talk about TSS whenever we're talking about training load and people get obsessed with the the, the figures and in the same way as I was talking about earlier with power meters, the figures have a massive amount of use and can be very, very beneficial. But at the same time, it's easy to get too bogged down in them. And really what's most important is the signals that you're reading from your your body. And I think even, as I said before, most cyclists have the tendency to overdo it. And even if you're at the point where you're asking that question, am I overtrained? There's a good chance you are. So what I would probably be suggesting would be Try doing a bit less, cut it down. Take two days in the week where you don't do anything. Don't train at all. And then see how that, or limit your weekend miles slightly or whatever, and see how your body responds to that.
2: Both okay. physically and mentally. Absolutely. How do you feel mentally about not doing that work, I yeah. think is a really important and, and
1: I think a lot of it is, and I, I'm not commenting on this particular person, but a lot of cyclists, it's an obsessive it's an obsessive level of, you know, exercise that they need. They feel like they need to do it. And it's a trap that lots of people fall into. It, it, to answer this person's question, I would need to really assess them, you know, one to one. But th- there are lots of people in this in this situation who are overdoing it.
2: 100%. And we've all kind of talked about our own experiences. Yeah. And, and similarly with me, I've been in a position where I have ultimately used exercise to mask, um, calorie deficits and trying to lose weight from a purely aesthetical point of view. And the problem with doing it in sport is that you often get positive feedback from people. So I was telling you earlier, I used to do a lot of running and became, I would say in, in quite a heavy pattern of disordered eating. Um, and I would run to amass calories that that I then felt that I could eat, Mm -hmm. you know, and the feedback that I would get from runners around me Mm through no fault of their own, but was, your physique is amazing. You look like you'd be a great marathon runner. Yeah. And in reality, I, mentally, I was screwed. I could but also.
1: Not... And, and that's, other runners probably looked at you and thought that. But then a lot of just normal people probably would have looked at you completely differently.
2: Yeah. And thought, oh my God. Yeah. But, but this is it, isn't it? And I think you can use those positive affirmations as um, proof that what you're doing and is I think okay.
1: Another thing that kind of happens as well in cycling is Strava. I think a lot of people sometimes will, you know, put these massive rides on Strava or even go out and do these stupid, stupid training rides so that their friends can see them on Strava. And, I hate know, Strava. I I rarely use it. And it, it's, there is so much of that kind of proving something to somebody when really, you know, what's, what's, what are you doing it for? Are you doing this to impress your friends or are you doing it to improve or are you doing it? Because it's something you want to do, you know?
3: I think the most important thing on this section as well is if you are worried about your health, either mentally or physically, you should speak to a health professional. You can find eating disorder support via beateatingdisorders.org.uk.
2: Next one is from Ben. My wife and I had our first child a year ago. Congratulations. And since then, bike riding has gone out the window as expected. How can I keep some sort of level of fitness while only being able to make it out to ride once or twice a week? I live near Regent's Park, so that's my local, but if I have more time, I usually head down to Richmond or Epping Forest.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, I haven't got kids, but I've got brothers with kids. And, you know, the initial couple of years is, it's always super busy and, you know, sleep patterns are being interrupted. And it's a huge thing. I think as well, sometimes with men, almost a guilt as well if they they don't want to put too much on their partner as well um but at the same time it's good for you and your family involved to be healthy and you know part of that is doing something for yourself and and if cycling is, is a part of it and i think it's really just about trying not to do too much maybe you, you're just going to have to limit your your aspirations can com- don't come do what jamie was doing and compare yourself to where you were before the baby arrives, because mm-hmm. your life was different before the, the baby arrived and and that's okay and it's really just about taking opportunities to ride when you when you can i think as well in terms of a fitness perspective maintaining fitness it would be more beneficial to do shorter regular rides than doing less long rides um the body responds more to being hit a little bit regularly rather than not riding for a whole week and then doing doing a big ride on a Sunday
3: so would an example of that be doing like four 20-minute turbos for example yeah. versus one 60-minute ride or or you know two 45-minute rides yeah
1: well I mean even cause I think when when people talk about cycling they're, I, I sometimes go out and do a two-hour ride and people oh that was a short ride and again what other sport is two hours of exercise a short amount of of exercise you know mm-hmm. I think People have a different, different um, set of uh, expectations when it comes to cycling duration. It's it's you can just get out and ride around Regent's Park for half an hour, and you will still you will be better for it, you know. And um, combine it with nap time or whatever. And it, it's it's. Uh, I think I'd say keep it up as much as you can. Prioritize doing it regularly rather than for a, a long duration, and just try to not be harsh on yourself and be reasonable with your expectations.
2: Next one is from Matthew. Hiya, love the pod. I'm looking to go from 30 miles of fitness to Alps fitness. I want to ride some mountains. I'm 54, asthmatic, 173 centimetres and 89 kilos. I don't know what that has Mm -hmm. to do with anything. Um, I have Zwift, all sorts of bikes, but a stressful job, although on only Monday or Thursday. Kids are gone. Advice on getting fit enough would be much appreciated.
1: Okay. So, uh, I think first of all, I think start from where you're at and just add any changes gradually. Um, you know, it sounds like you are interested in, in increasing that workload and increasing your, your fitness. Um, the fact that this, the fact that Matthew's mentioned his height and his weight, also and says to me that he's maybe worried that he might be too heavy um and i would again say as we have done no massive changes so obviously being sensible maybe changing some habits you know there's nothing wrong with losing weight it's just as long as you do it and you're sensible about it um so i would say that limiting the the amount of bad things that you're eating but at the same time giving your body plenty of of good nutrition to to work with the with the, um, the training load that you're, that you're putting on it. Um, again, I will say prioritize training regularly rather than training a lot at the weekends. You know, you this person does have three days off at the weekends and the, the, the temptation there is if you have three days is to fill them with loads of riding, especially straight away. And I would, I'd urge against that, I think, at this point, maybe do a longer ride on a Friday and a longer ride on a Sunday. But limit it to maybe maybe you know two hours each and then build that. I think uh try not to make too many huge changes too quickly. I think focus on gradual progression, gradual increase of the you know the workload and I as, as we've been talking about, just monitor those signs for overtraining. You know.
3: We him. Within- Going from 30 miles to Alps Fitness, so presumably he wants to climb some proper yeah. gnarly mountains. Is there anything specifically you would change because someone wants to focus on climbing? Yeah, I
1: mean, riding on hills is if that's something that they can do, then absolutely. I mean, um, some places in the, uh, I don't know where Matthew's from, but uh, if there are hills available, they don't need to be very long, but if you can work a little bit on your pedaling style climbing hills, then that will benefit as well.
3: Something that I am a big passionate believer of, and this will overcome all of Matthew's thought about maybe being on the heavy side to climb mountains, is get more gears (laughs) but like ride mountain bike gear ratios if you need to like there is there is enough gear ratio options out there in the world that no matter how aggressive the mountains are that you want to climb you're going to be able to get a good cadence that's sustainable you're not necessarily going to be world tour speed but you're going to get up and have a good time whereas if you're grinding really hard gears you're going to hate it
1: i think as well you know so if you're not a climber it means that you make long hills become even longer. So the intensity that you can do on them becomes less. Mm-hmm. So if you think, you know, a 40 minute climb to a pro, they can do it in zone four, they could do that at threshold. Whereas if that's taking uh, a Matthew an hour and a half, then they're not going to be able to push as hard as what the pro can. So, you know, and they'll be less trained and that kind of thing. So I think as well, even when you're there, try not to overdo it on the intensity, try to be. Especially if you're riding multiple days, you know, back to back. Um, there's a, people over overestimate how much faster increasing their, like, actual level of pain that they're going through. If you increase that by 50%, quite often you're only actually increasing 10 or 20% in terms of power. So, you know, it's just about uh, being sensible and not, not overdoing it.
2: Okay, last one is from Stuart I'm 42, ride an endurance bike and I like a good distance on a Sunday morning rather than a race. Have you any advice in, re- in regards to nutrition? Currently heading out with a tracker bar, a full bottle of something powdery and with a cafe stop normally for pastry. Is it worth spending the money on these gels, etc that I hear so much about? Looking to feel stronger and maybe do a long ride faster than what I did it the last time. And I want to avoid the major stitch I got from a century ride the first time i thought i would give nutrition a go so basically the last time he did a century ride he, he got a stitch from the yeah. nutrition
1: so i think this is interesting so he's saying likes to do a good distance on a sunday rather than a race uh, i think nutrition a lot of it is obviously dependent on the duration so uh, if he's working towards a century then obviously uh, nutrition will be be a big part of that but um it's, it's about how regularly you should be doing it. So I normally recommend to my coaching clients 60 grams of carbs per hour and you can get that from gels, you can get that from energy bars, you can get that from more basic bars or even jelly babies or something sugary or obviously having something, uh, Some it doesn't even need to be fancy stuff that's in your bottles, just having a big bottle of Fanta and take away the fizz and that'll stick a bit of salt in it and that'll be very much the same thing as what's in a in a high-level or high-end nutrition um, or high-end energy drink. But um, I think as well, one mistake people make is overfueling before the ride. So they fill themselves, they cram all this food in before the ride when really that's just putting the gut under too much stress.
2: Is that the sort of thing that would cause a stitch?
1: Yeah, probably. So you'd need to eat a lot during exercise to give yourself a stitch. It's more likely that he's overeating before it. So I'd say beforehand, just either muesli porridge with a banana, maybe jam on toast, nothing too fancy, but just giving yourself a nice mix of carbs, a little bit of sugar in there, but not too much, a little bit of protein there, but not too much. Um, And give yourself at least two hours before you you then are on the bike. Um, And then once you're on the bike, just regular. But I think as well, it it depends on on the person I say, Try different things on your training rides. Try jelly babies. Try different kinds of energy bars. Maybe try some gels and see if they work. But um it's really about keeping the you're fueling yourself regularly, but never overdoing it. Because that's whenever you can you can end up having, you know, problems with the gut and it can end up being slowing you down.
3: At least getting to the coffee shop, that's not a lot of food. So if, so if it's, if yeah. it's a good distance, you know, if he's done 40 miles, or whatever to get to the cafe, yeah. uh, or, or, you know, even 20 miles, 30 miles, and he's done all of that on one tracker bar and some powdery stuff, then that's perhaps not there's enough. A,
1: there's a window there where he can increase what he's, what he's consuming. Mm. I think as well on the cafe stop, then it's, it depends on what you, what kind of intensity you're, you're doing afterwards. If you don't go from having a, you know, a fry up having a fry up to then going and smashing it up some hills yeah you know it, you can it, have it a depends time yeah don't don't do what i do and have two Greg's sausage rolls and then no I, I don't do that
3: never <laughs> <laughs> right that's all we have time for thanks for all of your questions and sorry if we didn't get a chance to read yours out if you want to send in more questions or stories for us to read out on future episodes you can by sending them to wild ones podcast at cademedia.co.uk that's all for this episode. Thanks very much for joining us, Pete. Whoa. Thank you so much. Cheers. Um, actually, how do people find out your thing? What is it? Yeah, so we
1: are Upshift Fellow, and we're on Facebook and Instagram. Upshift up Velo. Upshift oh, Velo. Shift. <laughs> Upshift Velo. And um, yeah, you can just DM us from there if, you're, if you want to get in
3: touch. Cool. Um, if you like this episode, leave us a five-star review, follow, subscribe, share, etc. Thank you and goodbye.
2: Thank you. Oh, next week we also have a special guest, don't we?
3: Oh, yes, we do. An even specialer one. Oh, no. Even that's very specialer? Rude. <laughs> that's very rude to Pete. Well, it'll make sense when, when, it's, when it's unveiled who it is. It's better be good, guys. Oh, it's going to be very good.
2: <laughs> Clue, Jimmy is very happy about it. Yep. But we'll leave it there. Thanks. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat.